Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1089. Today we're celebrating the Pebble Beach Concours d'Elegance that takes place on Sunday, August 26th. Cars Yeah is a proud sponsor of this iconic event, and this will be my 30th year in a row attending the Pebble Beach Concours. I hope I see you there. What was special then is special now. When a car is collectible, if it was good when it was new, people will want it now. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I'm revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Colin Feichtmeier. Hey, Colin, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Yes, sir. Ready to go. All right. Colin Feichtmeier is on the selection committee, and he is a chief class judge at the Pebble Beach Concours d'Elegance. Born and raised in Mountain View, California, Colin was exposed to antique cars from infancy to his uncle and his father. Together, they had a collection of over 100 cars, half of which were pre-1925 American antiques and post-war sports cars. And at the young age of 19, Colin and his brother bought their first old car, a Model T chassis, restored into an authentic period racer. How cool is that? Since then, his automotive interests pretty much border on unhealthy obsessions, just like the rest of us, range from everything pre-war American and European and post-war European sports cars up to 1965 with a couple of exceptions, of course. So, Colin, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a brief moment to share a little bit more about your role at the Pebble Beach Concours and, of course, your unhealthy but healthy passion for automobiles? Sure. So I started with the Concours on the selection committee in 2010, I think it was, before the 2010 show, to organize the Pierce Arrow class, our classes, and that was just to help identify the right cars. And I think... The selection committee was just maybe second or third year, and it was uh, one of those things where they wanted some younger people on the board and our ideas in in general. So uh, part of that was putting together the Pierce Arrow class, and since then I've done, uh, and not in this order, but Pierce Arrow class, Mercer class, Steam cars, Stutz, Simplex, Hope cars. This year I'm helping... Uh, with the Class B, which is uh, vintage sporting cars, which are what we call nickel-era cars. Mm-hmm. And in addition, I also help with some of the other classes, in particular Class A, taking that over for the most part as well, which is the horses carriage class pre-1915. Wow. Well, you've got your hands full. Well, you know, one of the interesting things when I had Sandra Button on the show a couple of weeks ago, she talked about you, and that's how we got connected was uh, you're unique in a way because you deal with very old antique cars, but you're a pretty young guy. So that's kind of an interesting thing because most of the time you walk around the the lawn at Pebble Beach and you see older people dealing with the older cars because that's maybe they weren't, they were little kids or maybe they weren't even born, but that's more common. But you're a young guy to be doing this. That's unique. Right. So I, I've just always gravitated to the very early cars. And a lot of that was the exposure from my uncle and grandfather when I was a little kid, but I always say my cousins and my brother had the same exposure and it didn't bite them the way it did for me. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so I don't know what the special sauce was there, but uh, 
obviously has nothing to do with me remembering them when they were new. I'm 40 now, but I became a horses carriage club life member when I was 14 years old. And wow. I think the club's losing money on me on their monthly publications. <laughs> yes. <then, so. laughs> you, were, you were smart to pay that up front. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very nice. Um, so for whatever reason, it's always just, uh, I've always been most attracted to those. I do. I mean, I love uh, a lot of pre-war cars up into the thirties. I love, post-war sports cars. I've got a couple myself. And so, I mean, they're really fun to drive, but the true passion or I don't know if I hate the term, but expertise would be in that very early stuff, I think. Yeah, very cool. Well, as we continue on your journey, I always like to ask my guests for a success quote or a mantra, some kind of saying that's been instrumental in forming your success and perhaps even your passion for old automobiles. It's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on cars. Yeah. So Colin, take the wheel. So I don't really have a quote necessarily, but I try and live by, especially when it comes to old cars, is investigate and then educate myself. And so a lot of that has to do with, I found that when you're talking about cars, people will repeat things they've heard and things change over time and facts change. And they say, well, this is the car that so-and-so had, but you know, the whole body was rebuilt. And then you start, I always want to prove it to myself. So I'll try and investigate things and discover that, you know, they, they really didn't rebuild the whole body. They had to fix the wood in one corner of the back or, you know, those kind of things where I want to learn it myself rather than there are people I inherently trust with their knowledge, but I always try and triangulate or understand cars and their history and investigate it myself. And then part of that is hand in hand is educating myself on that as well. I want to learn as much as I can about these things. And, you know, I've got a, my wife treats the, uh, my office in our house that's full of car books stacked on top of each other (laughs) as like the room she dare not tread because I, I just, you know, it's, I try and just constantly educate myself more and more on cars that either I'm familiar with or unfamiliar with for that matter. And um, there was a joke this year in the selection committee. We were just kind of sitting around talking about cars, not in the meeting. And someone made the comment like, and I, I said something about, oh, that's the car so-and-so has now or whatever. And they go, how do you do that? And the other guy turns to him and goes, well, it's not for lack of hours that he's putting in on this stuff. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is, I, I spent a lot of time digging in on this. It's important because you are a judge at the most prestigious concours in the world. And it's it's that way for a reason, because not only just the years that the concours has been going on, but the caliber of cars and the caliber of people and the 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 quality of knowledge that you judges walk around with in your skulls is mind-boggling to me. And the show is so important to people that get selected and get to bring a car there that if you have people that don't know what they're doing when they're judging, oh my gosh, that would be horrible. So there's a lot of pressure, I would think. Yeah. There's a ton of pressure. Um, I totally agree with you. And there's a lot of I'm always, every year I learn something new or I see something and I go, because you end up studying the cars you're judging so closely that you get turned on to something and they always encourage us, you know, ask the owner, why is this this way? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they'll say, well, like that because of this photo when it was brand new or here's this literature that says this is the way they did it. And you go, God, if I had to guess, I'd say that's wrong, but here it is and it's correct. And so you're always learning as well. 
been blown away every single year by something either I'm judging someone I'm judging with or somebody uh, in another, I'll watch somebody in another class and they'll say, Oh, this has the one year only, uh, whatever it is, a dimpled valve cover. And you think how in the world, <laughs> how do you know that your brand, <laughs> yeah. did you know <laughs> yeah. that that's the case now? And it's a little easier, I guess, easier and harder with the very early cars because a lot of the practices and a lot of the accessories or, or just in general lights and that sort of thing, which were considered accessories, are a little universal between the cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, several of them had their own touches, but a lot of the stuff wasn't you know, proprietary to Pierce Air or, or Stutz or whatever. And so as a result, you can kind of say, well, that's period correct. That would have been correct on this car, yeah. stuff like that, So, which is nice. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a way that you're constantly trying to, ret- at least I am trying to retain this information to go forward and, and everything else. And especially at Pebble Beach, you know, it all happens one day. It's like yeah. you've got this huge year-long buildup, and then it's a whirlwind. And the next thing you know, you're exhausted and the sun's going down. Exactly. Well, one thing I'll, I'll remind listeners when you're at a Concours event, and I'll do this in the politest way I can, leave the judges alone. And the reason I say that, especially at a Pebble Beach level Concor or Amelia or some of these other Concours that are very, very prestigious. And, and I know this because my, the first woman I had as a guest on the show here was Diane Brandon, who has been a long time, a multi decade judge on Bentley Rolls Royce at uh, Pebble Beach. And she said something to me when, um, we were together at the Dawn Patrol, Haggerty Dawn Patrol, eating donuts and drinking coffee. And she said, yeah, I'm judging today. Don't talk to me when I'm judging. <laughs> she said, it is so intense. I, she goes, if you do, I'll probably be very rude to you and, and ignore you because she said the intensity and the seriousness of what we're doing here for these owners and for the integrity of the event and the owners is very, very serious. So, uh, I'll just add that little tidbit. Uh, would you agree with me, Colin? Leave you guys Absolutely alone. Absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah. I'll say hi to someone if someone I know is standing there. And a lot of times, you know, the people, the cars I'm judging tend to attract the people I know well. And right. so I'll give a little wave and say, hi, how are you? And uh, the conversation in the other side that you didn't mention is we only get 10 to 15 oh, minutes a car, depends on how big the class is. Yeah. And you're under a lot of pressure to not only do the car thoroughly, Listen to the owner. You know, there are certain things his spiel is or her spiel is going to take as long as it's going to take. So, mm-hmm. you know, you got to and you got to hear everything they got to say. Um, you got to check certain things on the car. And so and then a lot of it's the judges speaking with each other saying, hey, take a look at this. What do you think of this? And uh, those kind of things. And so a lot of that has to do. It does. It all takes time. And what I found is a lot of times, you know, you have a class, you could have up to eight cars on occasion, maybe even more, but say eight cars is typical. You might get to the end and say, okay, look, we've gone through all eight. We're still out on the field. I'm really starting to kind of see how this might form this class first, second, third, Mm -hmm. but I'm really torn between the second and third car or the third and fourth, which is an even bigger challenge, right? So you go, well, we got to revisit. Let's go take a look at that again. Let's go look at this because what you see in the first car may be different than what you see in the last car, you know, your perception. So yes, I've had it where people want to start talking to me and they start telling me stuff and i you just have to say, look, I'll catch up with you this afternoon, but I can't talk right now. Right, and, exactly. And just walk away. And, yeah. You know, <laughs> everybody gets it, and if they don't, 
Yeah, I'm not sure I want to talk to him that afternoon anyway. So. <laughs> there you go. So be polite. Leave the judges alone while they're working because it's a very, very serious deal. So that's your tip for today uh, from, car, <laughs> from Cars. Yeah. Well, let's go back in time. I kind of touched on this, and you did too at the beginning, uh, to share a story that instigated your personal passion for cars. That kind of pivotal moment, as you remember it, when you knew, unlike some of your siblings or cousins, that you indeed were going to be a car guy like your grandfather and your uncle. So a lot of it, I mean, I remember being, I remember riding in a little Model T Speedster, which was just this bucket of bolts, and it was really a rudimentary one. I was sitting on my grandfather's lap. I mean, I had to be two, three years old. And somehow my mom thought that was safe and okay. And <laughs> we went down, you know, it was only a couple mile ride, but still. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember being that age and thinking, I love these things. I want to know more about these things. And we'd go on vacations with my uncle and cousins. And I would just follow him around and ask him questions to the point where my mom would say, leave Uncle John alone. <laughs> You're going to drive him nuts. And he would say, no, no, it's fine. And, you know, yeah. I, it just, I remember that conscientious moment as a little kid thinking, I love these. I'm going to love these. And I need to learn everything I can about them. And it's not been shaken since. Um, I was going to say the other kind of moment was later in life. And I was out of college, I think I was probably 23 or 24, and I remember coming back. We went up on a car trip uh, to Oregon. My uncle picked me up, and we went up there, and it was an antique car tour called the Modoc Tour, and it's for pre-1920 cars. And you're up in the northeast corner of California where there's 10 times more cattle than there are people, and the roads are empty, <laughs> and it's a fabulous country. And we, we went into Oregon. And we were in this town that was on the way to nowhere, and we stopped for like a coffee stop. And there was a major collector who I've gotten to be very close with that was there. And he started coming up to me and just saying, well, what do you think that car's worth? Or what do you think of this car? And it was kind of like all of a sudden it dawned on me and he was like a king of the car collecting world. And he's asking my opinion. Wow. Yeah. Casual conversation. But I think he was kind of looking around going, I don't know if anybody else gets this stuff to the level that I want to go talk, that I want to talk about it. And so we've gotten to be, I mean, that was 15 years ago or more, sure. and we've gotten to be tight friends since then. Yeah. But a part of that is because we can have that conversation on that kind of level where it's stimulating, mentally stimulating to talk about the cars and to dive in deep. And, right. Um, well, well, it's that so 10,000 moments that. Yeah. It's that 10,000 hours of time you've invested into this. Plus, and uh, I know talking right. with Sandra and Candace at the Pebble Beach Concord, who's been so kind to help uh, facilitate. Uh, you're meeting me and the guests I'm going to have on next week. I'll have five people on the show that are all involved with the Pebble Beach Concours. Uh, what they were both telling me is the fact that, yeah, your depth and knowledge is what impressed so many of the older, we'll put quotes around that because I kind of fit into that mold, older people in the car industry. And I think it's just, you know, when you're around it for that long, it's pretty tremendous. All my friends from college or high school or buddies, Friends now who are my age always joke that I have all these car friends who are my parents' age. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, oh, you're cool. the only guy with a bunch of friends in, his seven, in their 70s. I'm like, yeah, well, it's the way it is. I like those guys. <laughs> well, you know, we are the culmination of the people we surround ourselves with. And you surround yourself with, right. with passionate people with a whole lot of knowledge. It's, some of that's going to rub off on you if you're good at listening. So right. I think I don't that's true. Yeah, as long as they love cars, that's all that matters. You got it. Well, let's talk about a challenge or a failure. And I'd like to associate this with being a judge at a concourse at the level of Pebble Beach because 
We talked about the pressures that are on you to do a really good job when you're judging somebody's car. Because again, to get to the point where you're invited to bring your car to Pebble Beach is the epitome of car collecting and car showing. I mean, it doesn't get any higher than that. It means so much to people and the pressure to them is very high. But the pressure to you is very high too. So I'd love for you to share a big challenge that you faced. And what did you learn from that situation? Kind of walk us through it and tell us how it helped you move forward uh, being a class judge and working at these levels. Well, I think being a judge at Pebble, it's continuous challenge. I mean, I haven't had a specific knock on wood hardship or anything like that where I feel like, oh man, you know, but there is a lot of stress. I always have trouble sleeping the night before and it kills me because we're up at dawn. Oh yeah. Um, So, but a lot of it comes to, it bothers me that someone, you know, the next day when I'm laying in bed is going to be disappointed because of our decisions. A lot of these people put in a lot of effort. They put in a lot of money, but they also put in a lot of effort to get the cars right. And a lot of times it's kind of, it comes down to opinion stuff. You know, I don't think this pinstriping is just not what they did in period. It's too fat or it's wiggly and they don't see it. They think, you know, the cars, you right. know, it's kind of like you're judging one of their children. I mean, oh, yeah. gonna, <laughs> you are. <laughs> and I get it. I understand it. And yeah. so that bothers me. You know, it's, it's part of the job, but it's the part that I like the least, I guess, because mm-hmm. you are constantly, you know, you're always evaluating that and you're saying this car is wonderful. I would love to own this car the way it sits. I wouldn't even change a thing. But when you're putting it in a competition type situation, another car could potentially be a better, you know, it's just a higher level of restoration or authenticity. Mm-hmm. And, and I say that, I mean, a lot of the cars that I own, I love the condition of the cars I have and I use them uh, as much as I can, which is not as often as I would well, like. I, but <laughs> Sure. Yeah, and and sure they're not. And, and if they were to go to a Concorde, they would fall flat. You know, they would they wouldn't place. So I look at it as I I try and delineate between how much I like a car, or and the quality and authenticity of the restoration, which is truly what you're going to be judging. But I think that's the biggest challenge is you're dealing with. I mean, in some cases you're dealing with big egos. There's a lot of people who don't get told no a lot because it's not a cheap hobby to be restoring cars for a car show. <laughs> sure, I understand. Uh, and yep. you know, and and a lot of you know, a lot of times it's somebody that looks at you and says, you know, I was restoring cars and buying <laughs> when great you were, cars when, when you were on your were grandpa's born. lap. <laughs> yeah. That's right, and yeah. and and they're right, and I get that, but it doesn't make it any less. You just have to be as objective as you can. And especially going in, being as objective as you can, not prejudging based on some knowledge that you have of the car beforehand or anything like that, but going in and saying, okay, I mean, not history knowledge, but going in and saying, you know, the last time I saw it, well, the wheels were kind of scruffy. I mean, you have to go in fresh and say, how do they look today? And I think that is a big challenge. No kidding. Um, And again, Fortunately, I haven't had a major hardship, as I know there's plenty of stories where people are disgruntled after the show because they got second or third and, you know, hey, mm-hmm. we did this authentically and, and those guys just buffed it or vice versa. We, ours is shiny and that one's not. And yeah. So you're never going to make everybody happy, but that's the, that's the biggest challenge, scariest thing to me sure. is I like, you know, I'm not trying to be a jerk about it. I don't want to go in and make adversaries by any stretch. I do it because I like it. I do it because I want to be involved with the greatest car show on the planet. And part of that, though, comes with you can't all be winners. And so that's, but that's what makes it a great one as well. Absolutely. How about an aha moment in your, your judging at Pebble and your interaction with people at uh, Pebble? Was there a big aha moment or a moment of like, 
oh, wow, I, I didn't realize this. Or a time when those headlights come on and kind of illuminate a new direction in your mind with when it comes to these old cars? You know, I think part of it is it comes when you're talking to the owners and or the person presenting the car. They start showing you either things on the car or original photos. And it kind of goes back to what I talked to before where you think, well, that, that can't be right. I've never seen that before. I mean, they would have never done this or done a clip to, you know, they clip the hood to the exhaust or something just crazy that you look at and you go, this, this can't be right. And they whip out a photo and you go, yeah. look here in wow. 19, we don't have it was new, but we got it in 21. It had that and you're like, oh my God, that's pretty impressive. You know, yes. I mean, that kind yeah. of stuff. I think a lot of it comes where I'm impressed with a lot of the owners have done extremely thorough research on their cars. And I think that goes a long way when I'm talking to people. There's nothing more impressive to a judge than being able to show them either this was the car when it was new, uh, which is a tough one when you get to this early stuff. Because, But a lot of times a nice photo is, hey, this was the car when it was discovered in the 50s. This was the car on the Harris Tour in 54. This was the, you know, and all it shows is this thing was never just a roach chassis that somebody had to make a rear end for. And this was always a real honest good car that's now being, you know, been re-restored to its authentic originality. So, I mean, I think from a judging standpoint, it's a big moment to just kind of have to see what, how people have prepped and that sort of thing. And it really struck me when I first started judging and I wasn't a chief judge or anything, but to see how people prepped for you and brought you stuff. And it's important and it's impressive. The other thing I think that's an aha moment with judging, and this came later, and somebody else actually mentioned it to me, but they said, it's unfortunate, but it's true. In our classes, we deal with so many different brands. So you'll have a Packard, and then you'll have a, a Stanley Steamer, and then you'll have a, you know, whatever, a Stoddard Dayton, and you get some real obscure brands. And if somebody brings a car that you happen to own or be extremely familiar with, they're almost at a disadvantage because you know, like say I have a 1913 National. If a National showed up, I'd have a better, I'd know exactly what I'm looking at or right. to a degree because I have a reference at home where I don't have a Stevens Durier, let's say. And if one of those shows up and they say, <laughs> well, this is correct, there's a little bit that goes, well, he might be right. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't know. Don't have um, one of it's those. hard. And, and this is when it comes to minute details, uh, how the crankcase is finished or how the fan is done. I mean, you know, not stuff that's obvious on the exterior of the car, but things that very little things. And a lot of these cars have these little strange nuances uh, that they were trying something. It was an experimental time, and a lot of this stuff was being done kind of like the Internet in 1999 and 2000, where everybody was trying something different and new, and most of them failed. Yep. But when you're judging, you, it's kind of a, it's an unfortunate thing that the one car you might know the most about almost hurts that guy a little bit because we can say, well, this is the uh, original correct carburetor. And you go, well, no, it's not. It should be a, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So. Sure. Wow. Wow. Lots of, lots of moving pieces and all of this for sure. Well, let's have a little bit Absolutely. of fun and talk about your first special car. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that Model T that you bought with your brother, but is there a first car that you bought that you just had lusted over, you'd worked hard to get, and you finally got it and went, wow, this is pretty cool? Well, I, I think it's that car. There's actually two I'll tell you about, but 
That Model T, I wanted, when I was maybe 11, I heard of a Model T engine for sale that was $200, and it was rebuilt. And I still remember near my house, I know the road it was on, and I was driving it with my parents. I had talked them into taking me down there. My uncle came by with a trailer. He was going to put it on this little trailer he had. And I don't know what I was going to do with an engine. I guess I would scrap <laughs> together the rest of the parts. In my mind, I just, hey, I was like yeah. 11 or 10. And I, my mom going, you don't really, you shouldn't be spending $200. That's like three Christmases for you or whatever. Yeah. You, know, you shouldn't be doing this. And it was just all I could think about. And we got there and my uncle got there ahead of us. He had found it. And he was pulling out of the neighborhood and he said, they want $800. It was Ooh. a typo. And Ouch. I was like in tears. I was just crestfallen because I mean, there was right. no way. And we U-turned and my mom said, well, we're better off. Yeah. So then fast forward to when I'm 19, there's this Model T that's sitting in a field in San Jose and it's got this old, horrible speedster body on it and it's falling apart. This guy, uh, a good friend, Dan Ersig, who works for, or worked for my uncle for decades now, still does. He and another guy, Ed Archer, who you've had on the show in the past, mm-hmm. pulled this Model T Speedster out of this field in San Jose three days before this 200-mile endurance run that they, didn't, they do in Santa Clara every year for the last 40-plus years. They Three days, it hadn't run in like 30, 40 years. They strap it together with baling wire. They get it running. The seats are so rotten, the bolts are falling out of the plywood floor, and they've got it all kind of nailed together. They take it on the run. They make it. They get back. They're eating. There's so many bugs in the wood of the car that they've got bug bites all over them. They said, it was Sunday night. I'm sitting at home with my brother and mom and dad. The phone rings. It's my uncle. I pick it up. He said, hey, you can buy that car for 2,500 bucks if you want it. I said, great, we'll take it. And he said, anybody go, what am I going to do with it? He goes, I'll tell you what, you buy the car, you and Grant, that's my brother, you guys buy the car, we'll pay for, to restore it at our shop with our guys. I said, that'd be amazing. Okay, good. Then he calls back a minute later, my mom answers the phone and he goes, well, the car already sold. And she, or the car just sold. And my mom goes, well, that's better off. Good. Oh, and he geez. goes, the boys bought it. Oh. <laughs> and, and so we bought the car and the crack up was it was $2,500 and we didn't have enough money to write one check. Oh, we each had to write our own check. <laughs> <laughs> we each had to write twelve fifty. So that was, and I still have the car. It's been restored. It's beautiful. It's been written up in the, the model T uh, national magazine. It's wonderful. I love it. I can drive it in my sleep. I've done thousands of miles in this thing. It's uncomfortable wow. for me, but I still love the car. <laughs> That's nice. the first one. And then, I would like, if I could, to tell you about this other car. When I was a little over nine years ago, dying for an early brass car, and I just, I was on the internet one night. My wife was really pregnant, I remember, and I'm sitting there and looking, clicking through, just looking at pictures, and I'm on Flickr, which were a public oh, yeah. uh-huh. photo album. Yeah. And so I start searching under different brands that are kind of obscure. So I search under Stutz and Mercer, and, and I can't afford one, but I, you know, figure, well, I'm just looking to see what's out there. So I look under Pope. Pope Hartford, which is a, a brand that went out of business in 1914, made fantastic cars in Hartford, Connecticut. And I see these pictures come up of this Pope that's sitting in a barn, and I recognize it from a tour that I was on when I was 15. Oh, my gosh. Up in the Santa Rosa area. Wow. So, and I look who's posted these pictures, and it's a small dealer out of the north, out of Marin, Santa Rosa area in California. And he, he deals in like T-Birds and muscle cars and that kind of stuff. So I go to his website. I call him up. I said, hey, I found these pictures online that you took like a year ago, it says, or posted them. And they're in your like kind of folder. I'm, I'm not hacking them, but, you know, I kind of felt like I was. <laughs> and I said, uh, 
you know, what's the story with that Pope Hartford? He goes, oh yeah, that family called me and they wanted me to come out and sell their car. And I took a bunch of pictures and then I never heard from them again. So I don't know what they were doing. I said, would you, could you get back in touch with them? I'd be interested. So I must've called him two or three times. He goes, yeah, they're still not calling me back. Finally, he goes, he goes, look, they called me back. He goes, what I'll do is I'll go over there and take some new pictures for you. I said, no, no, no. I want to go with you. Let's go this Sunday. I'll go with you and we'll look at the car together. I want to see it in person. So I take a trailer and this other buddy of mine, Dan, and we drive up to Santa Rosa and we go in and sure enough, it's the Pope. It's a mess. It's been sitting in this barn for since the seventies and they've used it, but they hadn't driven it in 15 years. It's pretty clapped out looking. I end up talking to them. They say, yeah, we want to sell it. Great. She gives me a price and I don't even count her. She goes, you probably want to think about it. I said, no, I'll take it. And shook her hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're done. And, and I happened, and I brought a trailer with me in anticipation, which kind of shocked her and shocked the dealer. I backed the trailer into, they had this old West town set up in their backyard of these old buildings at a huge kind of ranch. I backed the trailer down the main street of this old West town and pulled the the Pope out of the barn and got it running. It took a lot to get it running. I, I didn't. I had it done. And I still have it. I use the, I've used the car a lot. It's, it was really special. I have photos driving across the Golden Gate Bridge with this car on the trailer. And, Fine. and, and the, <laughs> I remember that when it was, because my daughter was a month old, and I got home four hours after I told my wife I'd be home on a Sunday, and the baby's wow. screaming, and I'm covered in dirt, and she had these dogs, and they were like covered in fleas. And I'm like, I got to take a shower before I hold the baby. I was, I was, my name was Mud that day. But <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> Thus it goes when you're hunting for old cars. Well, you mentioned Ed Archer too. Yeah. He was a guest a while back on Cars. Yeah. Uh, guest number 503, I believe. And yeah, what a character for you listeners that did not get to catch his show. Go back to the Cars Yeah website. Listen to Ed Archer's show. He's an incredible character is a good way to put it. Wonderful guy. Uh, incredible knowledge on old cars. And, uh, uh, the co-founder of the annual Santa Clara Valley Model T Ford Club, um, which is pretty cool, too. So, uh, yeah, Ed Archer, what a great guy. How about Seller's Remorse? Is there a vehicle you've let go that you really wish you'd kept? I have only sold a few cars, and usually it was to buy something else. The one that's killed me is I had a 1972 Land Cruiser FJ40 when I was in college. I mean, excuse me, in high school. And it was not a... You know, there's, I mean, they're collectible now. At the time, it wasn't. It was just a really cool car that I loved and it had the original upholstery in it. I drove it every day to high school and, you know, practices after and everything else. For some reason, when I graduated at the end of the summer before I went off to college, I decided I should sell it. And I don't know why I decided that. And I did. I actually made a little money on it. And funny story, my dad and I, it was $5,000 when we bought it. We each put in 2500 by this point, I had a job. We each put in $2,500 to buy it. And then when we went to sell it, I, I the guy was going to pay me 5600 So I said, Dad, I'll give you your 2500 back. And he goes, no. <laughs> yeah, he goes, no. you owe me $2,800. Yeah. He said, this, is, this wasn't a loan. Yeah, this it was a, a business deal, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Good <laughs> so try, son. Good try. I, truly, <laughs> I actually um, tried to find out what it was last registered. I went up and down the street with flyers, you know, but I was three years after the last registration had been paid. And I don't know if it, nobody seemed to remember it, but I knocked on every door on the street and gave him a flyer with a picture of it and said, have you seen this? And I, I would <laughs> like to get that car back if I could. But It's like looking uh, for a lost a dog, friend. but you're looking for a lost car. Oh, that's totally. Funny. And and <laughs> and it's probably been beaten up so bad that I would kind of hesitate if I saw it today, but it, I'd still like to have the decision. 
Nice. Well, I'd love for you to share a little bit about what has you excited this year about the Pebble Beach Encore and your involvement. So what are you looking forward to uh, coming up here in a couple of weeks? Um, well, I'll tell you, I think there's some great cars in Class A, which is our horse's carriage class. Um, we also, for the first time, have done a vintage class of just sporting cars, which was me and a couple other guys' idea that just two passenger sporting cars. And I think they're really going to present well together. And that's a Mercer race about and a Page Daytona. And well, I won't give them all away, but a Stutz Bearcat and a couple other similar type cars. They would be competitive in the sales room in their day. And they'd be, you know, so they're similar buyers at the time and they're all going to be together. We should have an example of just about every type of that sort of car. So that's pretty exciting stuff. The other thing I'll tell you, I know the cars that are coming. I mean, on the selection committee, I sit in the meetings, we vote on stuff or we chime in. And, you know, if we're familiar with a car, I still can, every single year I've done it, I'm still blown away when I get to the Concorde because you're seeing them in the flesh. You're seeing them all together. Um, right. you know, this year we're featuring Oscar. We're going to have a bunch of Oscars. And it's not like seeing one next to a Fiat, next to a Ferrari or whatever. This is a whole row. It'll be impressive. Right. Um, the other thing, when I see them, a lot of times it's restoration photos or pre-restoration photos or the car is still dirty or whatever, or disassembled. To see them finished and all together looking as good as they can look, it is always blows me away. And so that really excites me. And it took me a while to kind of grasp that because every year I'd kind of go and I'd say, well, it's the downside to knowing what's coming is you know what's coming. There's no surprise right. anymore, yeah. but yeah. I'll tell you, it's not the case. When you can look, I can look at the website that, that we have like a little internal website to kind of keep track on stuff. I can do that for as long as I want, but man, getting there and seeing the stuff in the flesh, there's yeah. nothing like it. There um, is nothing like it. So that's like going to be exciting. There is nothing like the Pebble Beach Concorde d'Elegance. It is absolutely phenomenal. Well, here's a very introspective question for you, Colin. If you were manifested into a car, what would you be and why? No one's ever answered this, a uh, clapped out Model T or everybody wants to be a Ferrari, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're honest, and I have had guests that are very brutally honest about themselves saying, I wish I was a Ferrari, but I'm an old F-150 pickup, yeah. you know, or a beaten up old, you know, clacker of a Volvo wagon. Um, yeah, so that's that's the key here is is how do you perceive yourself in a car I, body? I'm still going to flatter myself a little bit, but I okay. like to think <laughs> this is going to get specific. I like to think I'm a Pierce Arrow 1915 to 1920, something like a four passenger, which would be a later like an 18 1920, 48 horse. And the reason being, <laughs> I can put the <laughs> <of> this. <laughs> the reason being is. They're big cars. I'm a big guy. Um, A four-passenger is somewhat athletic still. It handles – it's not the big seven-passenger bus. So I like to think that I fit in that. It's got a, um, you know, it's not the biggest one. They made a 66. That would be a bigger one. I'm not a huge guy. I think they're really quality. They're really straightforward. This is where I'm going to flatter myself. They're they're mechanically – very strong, but they're also mechanically very simple and straightforward, and mm-hmm. they're intuitive, and a lot of people like them, and I'm hoping that's some of the traits that I have. <laughs> nicely <laughs> nicely said. I like the way you put that all together, and that's a very unique car. First time anything like that has been mentioned by anybody here on Cars, yeah, so you're very unique, that's for sure, so I like that. My but fear as a listener might not know what it is, but... <laughs> well, you know, that's what Google's for. Just uh, look it up, and you'll find you uh, lots of pictures of those cars, and 
And if you're fortunate enough, yeah. yeah, And if you're fortunate enough to be on the lawn at Pebble Beach, you'll get to see some old cards like that too. So very nice. Well, calling up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. Everyone who knows me knows I'm really picky when it comes to my cars and keeping them looking new. I'm a huge fan of Covercraft floor mats. I've protected my vehicle with their products for decades. Want to keep your vehicle's interior looking new? It's easy with Covercraft floor mats. They will protect your vehicle's factory carpets from daily abuse, weather, pets, children, weekend adventures, and those everyday spills. It's a fast, easy, and stylish way to keep your vehicle looking new. Covercraft floor mats come in a wide variety of styles, materials, and configurations, all designed for maximum protection. In addition to Premier Plush and Berber Custom Floor Mats, you'll also find cargo liners, canine cargo area liners, dash covers, and sunscreens. Enhance your vehicle's looks while protecting the factory finishes with easy-to-install and easy-to-clean floor mats. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark at Cars Yeah sent you. That's Covercraft.com. Hey, this is Mark Green. Are you interested in selling online and building a sustainable business? Bonanza is a marketplace platform that empowers you to create your dream business. Getting started at Bonanza is easy. You can start fresh or import your items from other marketplaces like Amazon, eBay, Etsy, or Shopify. Auto parts and accessories are a high-performance category at Bonanza, and there's no risk involved in signing up. There are no listing fees or monthly fees. You pay only when you make the sale. Bonanza listens to seller feedback and uses it to improve tools and build new features, so there are tons of customization options for sellers no matter what the size of your business. Be sure to sign up using the link bonanza.com slash cars yeah, and you'll receive a free consultation with Bonanza experts who make sure that you are on your way to generating sales. That's bonanza.com slash cars yeah. Okay, Colin, we are back and we're entering the last lap, the last walk around the lawn here at Pebble Beach. I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners a very quick blips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Well, I think it's, it's again, a mantra. It's what was special then is special now. When a car is collectible, if it was good when it was new, people will want it now. If it was common, not so much. I think that's, I try and use that a lot. Yes, absolutely true. Would you share one of your personal habits you believe has contributed to your many successes over the years? I read a lot. I read not just about cars, but I read a lot of nonfiction. I hardly read any fiction, and I do read a lot about cars. So, again, it's constantly trying to educate myself. Always Um, sharpening the saw, always learning. That's important. Exactly. Now, Now, how about a resource? There are so many awesome resources these days. Is there one in particular you'd like to share? I think the Internet in general is an incredible resource. Whether There's various websites that have registries on them for different brands of cars. I think those are amazing. And then a lot of it's books. I don't have anything that's in particular that it's always a go-to, but depending on what kind of car I'm talking about, I have a, usually have a book about it or some sort of uh, registry that I try and maintain. I try and get my hands on every, especially early car registry I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, great. that tracks, when I say registry, that tracks cars that are in existence today, serial numbers and ownership histories and that sort of thing. Yeah, very cool. Now, if I could wave my magic wand and allow for you to sit down on the patio there in front of the lodge at Pebble Beach and have a drink with anyone in the automotive field, living or deceased, who would that individual be? 
No, without a doubt, Bill Hera. Oh, he was wow. The king. He was, yeah. <laughs> Bill Hera was the ultimate collector. I've read his oral history, his autobiography, or his, not autobiography, his biographies, um, oral histories by employees talking about him. I'm fascinated with him, and he was the ultimate collector. You know, I'm really surprised. You're the first person out of 1,089 people that mentioned Bill, and I'm kind of surprised because um, incredible person. I mean, incredible collector and just, you know, one of those people in history that bigger than life in, in so many ways. So uh, I'm glad that you brought his, his name up. And an appetite that could never be quenched. <laughs> I know. His appetite for cars <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Well, he had the pocketbook to write the checks, too, so that kind of helps. Uh, I think we all, have, we all have big appetites, but our checkbooks aren't quite that big to follow our dreams. Well, how about a book? Uh, you mentioned uh, that you love to read. Is there a book in particular you'd like to share with the Cars Yeah listeners? So there's a very obscure book that I love. I've read it a few times, and it's just the story of one collector in the 50s and his life in the collector car world and in New England and growing up around cars and that sort of thing. And it's called Motor Mania. And the author is Roger Cutting. And you can find it on eBay, and they're usually only a couple bucks each. I mean, it went out of print in the 60s, I think. But it's not self-serving, and it's not braggy, and it's it's, it's not necessarily an information book, but it just kind of tells you how the beginning of the hobby uh, started and that sort of thing. Oh, very and cool. It's something that most people don't have or have never even heard of. Yeah. Well, very cool. That's the first time that book's been mentioned. I'll remind our listeners you can find all these great resources Colin has shared on his show notes page on the Cars yeah website. Just type Colin, C-O-L-I-N, Feichtmeier, F-E-I-C-H-T-M-E-I-R into the search bar and his page will pop up. And there's a great place on the Cars yeah website called Guest Recommended Books where this book and way over a thousand books have been listed there by my inspiring automotive enthusiast guests here on Cars yeah, with quick, easy clicks to buy. It's a wonderful resource. All right, we're up to the checkered flag. This is a tough one, Colin. Maybe it won't be, but I think it might be for you because here's the deal. I'm going to buy you any car on the planet today. doesn't matter who owns it, where it is. I'm getting it for you, but there's a couple rules. You have to get rid of all your other cars. You can only have this one car in your garage. But you got to drive it, which isn't a problem for you, but you can't sell it to buy back all your cars with. So you got to keep it. You've got to use it. You've got to enjoy it. So what can I buy you? This is a tough question to narrow it down to one. It's tough to narrow it down to five. I know. Um, well, for a guy like you, yeah. Conflicting with almost everything I've told you, to me, and the ultimate car that I've driven and experienced is an early 30s, like a 31 Alfa Romeo 8C2300. A short chassis touring spider. I've driven a couple. They can do everything. And I choose that because you can go on old car trips. You can go on trips like the Colorado Grand. You can do sports car runs. They are incredibly capable. They're so fun to drive. You can drive at three-way speed. You can do anything you want in them. And they just are so engaging, but they're still difficult. I've driven Ferraris in the 50s and 60s, and they're wonderful, but they're almost too good. They shift too easy. The, the Alpha, you still need to think about. I've never driven like Fred Simeon's 8C 2900MM, which may even be that much better, but I've driven a short chassis 2.3, and that would be the ultimate car. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you picked something pretty special here. So 
<laughs> oh wow! Yeah, what well, a you're beautiful. Buying. Well, I know. Yeah, so yeah, as long as I offer, why not spend all my money just like everybody else yeah. does? Holy cow! Uh, yeah, what a special car and and incredible those old Alphas. Just the cars that were built by Alpha back in the 30s, even the 40s. I mean, just spectacular cars, and they just keep popping up. Uh, David Smith, who you know, of course, uh, who has some and has some incredible alphas. Some of the cars that he brings to Concours events, and he brought a spectacular one to the Forest Grove Concours a couple of weeks ago that I was at. Uh, you just go, whoa, what's that? I mean, they're just, they're just beautiful in they're, so many ways. So they're beautiful. They're, they're 30 years ahead of their time. Uh, the yeah. power and the speed in them, uh, that they're capable of is amazing. I mean, they're competitive. They could, they were competitive in the fifties still. Yeah. And, you know, here it is early thirties. It was just on a tour up in Tahoe, a little small group of friends. And there were uh, three of them on the little tour we were on. And so we were all switching seats around and I got to dr- jump in a couple. And, and I've put a lot of miles in some of them because I've got some very close friends that are fortunately have them. And I still can't get over how much I enjoy driving them every time. And you still have to think when you shift and they still handle nice, but you've got to pay, you're paying attention that, oh man, they're predictable and they just do everything right. Wow. Very nice. I'm going to hang out with you more often. You've got the right friends. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm a little spoiled in that regard. <laughs> well, it's nice to have friends with cool cars, kind of like having a boat. Always good to have a friend with yeah. a boat. Well, Colin, you've taken us on a great ride today. A nice walk around the lawn here at Pebble Beach. What a magnificent time. I really enjoyed getting to know you better. I want to thank you for sharing your automotive journey. Looking forward to seeing you on the lawn at Pebble Beach. I promise you I won't bother you while you're judging your cars. Could you offer us a little... in the afternoon, though. Yeah, there you go. After you calm down a little bit. Would you give us a little parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you drive off into the California mountains in that Alfa Romeo 8C? Well, I think, I don't know how much advice I'm able to give, but I think it comes back to just do your own research. Know what you're looking at. Know what kind of car you you want. And I have a lot of friends that say, oh, I'd love an old car. Okay, well, go figure out what that is, and then let's talk about why that's the right car for you. Because if you don't, old cars are temperamental, and you're going to you're going to fall out of love with it if you're not in love to start with. Uh, find the car that really speaks to you and pursue that car. And then you'll put up with the, some of the temperamental issues and the, the growing pains when you first get a car. But if you don't love it to start with it, it's not going to, it's not going to do well for you or the hobby. So there you go. Very nicely said. What's the best way for listeners to learn more about you, follow along and to learn about the Pebble Beach Concours d'Elegance? Well, I think the Concours, you know, uh, look online. They've got a, a great website that gives all the events, uh, that they've got planned throughout the week. Obviously, there's millions of events that surround it during the week in Monterey as well. I don't have a personal website so or social media or anything like that, but uh, if you see me on the lawn at Pebble Beach in the afternoon, please come by and say hi if you've heard this and uh, uh, introduce yourself. So Absolutely. Well, listeners, again, you'll find these links on Colin's show notes page on the Car Show website. Just type Colin, C-O-L-I-N, into that search bar. And that will pop right up. And if you're fortunate enough to join us on the lawn at Pebble Beach in a couple of weeks, oh, yeah, walk up to Colin and say hello. In the afternoon, after he's done, would be the best time to talk to him. Uh, you can tap on my shoulder anytime because I'll be wandering around. Uh, if you have any opportunity to ever get to the Pebble Beach Concord d'Elegance, you've got to go. It is a lifetime thing. Uh, as I said at the beginning of this interview, this will be my 30th year walking the lawn. I can't wait. Incredible. Can't wait to see all the cool cars. 
Colin, thanks for being so generous today with your time, your expertise, and for sharing your experiences with the listeners here. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you on the lawn at the Pebble Beach Concord Elegance. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. What's every automotive enthusiast dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garage is built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. You take care of your cars, but who takes care of your investments? Tune-ups aren't just for engines. Updating your financial plan is important, too. Your GPS may take you from A to B, but it won't help you on the road to financial freedom. For that, you need a good co-pilot and a very trusted advisor. Chris Kimball, CFP, is just the man for the job. He'll guide you down that road without driving you crazy. For over 25 years, Chris has helped people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. With a master's degree in financial services, he is eminently qualified, and he's a car guy too. Learn more at chrisvkimble.com or call 866-ON-A-PLAN. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member FINRA SIPC. CK Financial Services is not affiliated with Money Concepts Capital Corp. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.